Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Precious. Uh, that is, my, my friend Jonathan Berlin wrote that song. Yeah, Nicole, you know Jonathan, a.k.a. Sun Bears. A.k.a. What's that band he's in? Johnny Swim. He's in that band. Well, yeah. I mean, that's his solo thing, but he's in Johnny Swim as well and uh, produces most of Jesus Culture and Bethel music, which is kind of cool too. Welcome, everybody, to citybeautiful.ch. And happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, The fact that you're here gives me hope uh, that maybe we haven't entirely given ourselves over to nationalism. <laughs> so uh, many of you know uh, what the agenda is for today. Uh, we're in this series called For the Sake of the World, where we've been kind of renewing our posture to, what it, first of all, what it means to be the church, and then secondly, what it means to be the church in relationship to the world around us. That, you know, perhaps a lot of us that grew up in the Christian household have, um, a bit of a sour taste in our mouth when it comes to ideas like evangelism or missions or justice or whatever it might be, because we've seen it done wrong. And that's completely valid, but you can't live out of a sense of uh, contempt for what isn't authentic. We need to renew our vision for these things because that it is very much what we're called to be as the church. And I had planned um, early on, I don't even know if I recognize that it was this weekend to talk about the relationship of the church to the world in the sense of politics and um, our engagement with government. And I was writing this whole diatribe on Romans 13, and I had all these like quotes so I could just like prove my points and yada, yada, yada. And then last week, I was sitting here with our friend Nicole Carrero, and we were talking about it. I said, what if, what if I just open it up for people to ask questions? Like, I have all these things that I find interesting, but I want to know where you're at and where your heart is and where your mind is when it comes to being a Christian and being an American, specifically when it comes to the political arena. Because I think that's where a lot of things are misaligned for us. Maybe we haven't been given a truly more faithful way of approaching that. And it's a place where a lot of us... um, kind of have wounds. There's been major disillusionment or disappointment perhaps in the churches that we grew up in and 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 or perhaps the way that our our family is postured to it or uh, we get addicted to like you know the rage porn online. Is anybody familiar with rage porn? It's uh it's on on social media that is specifically intended to keep you angry at all times because anger equates to dollars, right? So it's the get a load of these guys these idiots, these evil people, that kind of stuff. And these videos are are pervasive online, and politics is the fastest and quickest way to get us to do that. Um, And so rather than me giving you a completely eloquent sermon that would totally answer every possible contingent for this question, because it's not like we've been struggling with this for 2,000 years, um, what I decided to do is I'm going to lead you on a meditation through 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll kind of briefly set it up, and then I'm going to give you my phone number, Um, and you're going to text me the questions that you have, not Marshall, because I know he's he's big on the gotcha questions, 
Uh, but you're going to text me the questions that you have, and I'm going to try to go through those as best as I can. Uh, and then I'm going to wrap us up uh, by bringing us to the Lord's table. So um, as I'm leading this meditation, it's going to be on screen. You can read along. Some of you might be more audio listeners, like learners, so you want to kind of close your eyes and allow the words of Peter to wash over you. But one of the things we, we talk about a lot is like your body actually leads your mind and your heart. So if you're all like squinched up and tense, um, your, your mind and your heart are in that same posture. But when you're open and available to the Lord, physically, it actually opens up your body and your mind as well. So I want, to, I want you just to kind of check your posture right now, just kind of take an inventory or like, you know, you know for me, I'm usually like tightened up around my eyes or my jawline and I have to like open that up a little bit, shake it out a little bit and just kind of get in a posture, you know, even put your hands before you if you want uh, to receive so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read through this passage uh, somewhat slowly. And what your, your role is to be open and available to the Lord, to see what uh, God might want to show you. Um, for some of you, there might be a word or a phrase that really stands out, that kind of catches your attention, okay? And I think that that, very often, that is God speaking to us. You know, a lot of us, we expect that when God speaks, it must be some sort of like, you know, totally out-of-the-box experience, but a lot of times God speaks to us through our intuition, right? So perhaps there's a word or a phrase that captures your attention. You feel like that's where you're being invited to dwell, okay, to trust that that's God speaking. Some of you might get uh, an image or there might be a memory attached to a particular word or phrase, so I want you to hold on to that. Um, and when God speaks, it's not always a conclusion, amen? Sometimes it's an invitation or it's a question. So what makes you curious or what kind of seems to stir you up, that also might be from the Lord. And for us to be able to take some time and to sit in that. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this, uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 17, rather slowly. I'll give you a minute or two to reflect. Feel free to like write yourself some notes on your, uh, on your phone, and then we'll continue on. <clears throat> so let's pray. Um, so, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for uh, this day, this place, and these people. I pray that even now, um, your spirit would alight upon each of your dear ones here, that you would open our ears to hear your voice, um, that you would open our minds to receive your truth, that you would open up our hearts to believe that we are a people who not only are capable of hearing you speak, um, but that you are eager to speak to each one of us. So Lord, we give you permission to surprise and delight us by how you move today, because we trust that when you move, it draws us deeper into your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus. So speak, Lord, for we're listening. Come to him, to that living stone. Humans rejected him, but God chose him and values him very highly. Like living stones yourselves, you are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood 
to offer spiritual sacrifices that will be well-pleasing to God through Jesus the Messiah. That's why it stands in Scripture. Look, I'm setting up in Zion a chosen, precious cornerstone. Believe in him. You'll not be ashamed. He is indeed precious for you believers. But when people don't believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble as they disobey the word, which indeed was their destiny. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Your purpose is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you were no people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. My beloved ones, I beg you, strangers and resident aliens as you are, to hold back from the fleshly desires that wage war against your true lives. Keep up good conduct among the pagans, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will observe your good deeds and praise God on the day of his royal arrival. Be subject to every human institution for the sake of the Lord, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish evildoers and praise those who do good. This, you see, is God's will. He wants you to behave well and so to silence foolish and ignorant people. Live as free people, though don't use your freedom as a veil to hide evil, but as slaves of God. Do honor to all people, love the family, reverence God, honor the emperor. Let's just take a moment and sit with that.
I wonder what lenses you come into uh, a scripture like this with. So for me, you know, I come in kind of in chronological order, you know, first as, uh, as a British citizen, as having been born in another country. So when I, when I think of government, my first point of origin um, is there living, in, uh, li- living with a queen, having a parliament and so on. But I also read it as someone from Northern Ireland, which has its own kind of tricky political situation. As many of you would know in my home country, um, it's an example of what happens when politics and religion are completely conflated. Uh, and the joke in Northern Ireland is someone comes up to you in the street and says, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? And you say, well, I'm an atheist. And they say, okay, but are you an atheist Protestant or are you an atheist Catholic? <clears throat> because it has almost nothing to do with what you believe about God. It has everything to do about your political allegiance. So when I read scriptures like this, those are kind of some of the lenses that I'm reading them through. Um, I'm also reading them as an immigrant, someone who's been in this country for 33 years. Um, so that line about being resident aliens, that's something that I resonate with. That's my actual story. Jonathan has the same. Jonathan is still fighting with the U.S. government to get his green card sent through the mail because it was misaligned and it's a mess. And you guys can be praying for him um, and his little Canadian heart. Um, and I read it as an American citizen that just over three years ago I took citizenship, um, which, you know, I've told this story before. It was World Refugee Day when I was sworn in, which I didn't know, and I was surrounded by refugees from Syria, uh, from Venezuela, some other countries where them getting citizenship here meant some, a, it was a really big deal for them. Um, and the reason that I ended up feeling like I needed to take my citizenship was recognizing that immigrant friends of mine who are having a really hard time getting their citizenship, uh, and here I am sitting with this golden ticket, and I'm just not taking it because I'm so self-righteous and recognizing uh, that there was an invitation there. So I wonder what lenses do you read these scriptures through? Because we all have them. There is no such thing as the plain reading of scripture, okay? There's no such thing. None of us come into it without some sort of a lens. We have a national lens. We have a, uh, perhaps a generational lens. We read it uh, through the lens of ethnicity or through uh, our political parties and alliances. Like We read these kinds of passages through all these lenses, and it's imperative that we recognize that and we're sensitive to that so that we can kind of step a little bit more into the first century world when something like this was written and then allow it to reflect back on our 21st century world to see how it might speak to us today. Uh, Because certainly a passage like this um, can very quickly be used in a 21st century American uh, partisan world to justify certain things. When you see that word, you say, and I've had it before thrown in my face, people are like, look, it says, honor the emperor. Just, it says it right there. You know, or people will use Romans 13 as well, where it says, like, submit to government. Because, well, submit to the government. You know, uh, back in the day when I used to argue with people on Facebook. <laughs> wow, that was a great, those are great times, eh? Um, I got in an art, a discussion about, uh, you know, uh, something that the former president had done that I thought was rather blasphemous, uh, which the current president also does things that are quite blasphemous. And uh, someone decided to pick a fight, and they said, well, it says in Romans 13, you've got to submit to government. You've got to submit to government. I said, well, do you apply that to the guy that was in the White House before that guy? And he goes, oh, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that guy was a liar. I'm like, it doesn't matter. 
whatever your approach to Romans 13 is about submitting to government, you can't pick and choose which president you're going to send it, like uh, attach that to. Um, that's where the, our partisan lenses come through. Or it comes through in our American lens, right? To say, do we believe that Kim Jong-un was appointed by God in this very particular way? If your theology is God chose him and said, yep, he's the guy that I want to do this. Or the classic example, Hitler. Like, do you believe that God, and I, and I asked him this question. And I said, do you believe that God decided Hitler was the right guy for the job? He said, well, you know, I, I guess I would have to say yes. I was like, okay, so I don't know if this conversation could go any farther. But it's important that we recognize those kinds of lenses because they affect our approach. And because we live with a confirmation bias, we look for passages of scripture that already justify what we want to believe that they say rather than allowing them to radically reshape and reform us and to potentially deliver us from some of our small-mindedness. So this is kind of, this is the, the thesis that I want to attach to this as we're going through and asking some questions, that our first citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, and that shapes our approach to the governments of human beings. I, I, I hope that does not sound controversial after reading 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is very much what he's telling us. He's saying, you are uh, foreigners and exiles. You are resident aliens. This, you, you are here, you are in this country, but you are not of this country. That's kind of the attitude that Peter's encouraging us to. And we see it similarly in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, you are citizens of heaven, or as we've, we've talked about, another way of translating is you are the colony of heaven, like you are a, a colony in a foreign territory that's establishing this new kingdom way. And I think it's important that we recognize from a theological standpoint, if you, if you have been claimed by Christ and you claim Christ, that your primary citizenship now is in this place called heaven. That's your really real identity. And I, th I love that this is how that, that resident aliens language begins to speak, that all of us, we have migrated, we've immigrated, so to speak, to the kingdom. And we've all been given a green card and we're on our path to citizenship. And, and maybe we don't know the language that well, or we don't know all the customs. Like it took me a long time to recognize that I was constantly looking the wrong direction across the street, you know, or that a parking lot is, a car park is a parking lot and that uh, crisps are chips and chips are fries, like all those little things. It didn't mean that I didn't belong. It just meant it was a little bit awkward uh, to, to kind of settle into this new country. And for all of us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, yeah, maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable and we don't know the language, we don't know the customs, but we're kind of working it out. And I think that that's really important uh, because then it begins to reshape our attitude to being Americans or whatever your country of origin might be. But I think what this most powerfully does for us is that it invites us to recognize, uh, to begin to, to filter through some of our beliefs and assumptions about Christianity and politics or Christianity and government, um, to, to ask, well, where is our true allegiance? Um, and I think questions of allegiance often come down to being able uh, to, to question and to examine uh, those kinds of things that uh, are lenses, like, you know, like the, the, the glasses on someone's face. Like you don't look at your glasses, you look through them. And most of the time, if you have a good pair of glasses, you don't even notice them. Um, and I think citizenship in heaven 
invites us to begin to look at the glasses through which we look at the rest of the world. And I think one of the most powerful things that I've recognized in my own life and for many others is that you can't admit that there are conflicts between your allegiance to Christ and your allegiance to your country or your political party. You probably need to slow down and to do some more work. Um, this weekend, we celebrate uh, the birthday of this country. Um, she's, a, she's, a, she's a crazy old biddy. Uh, she's been through a lot, you know? Um, and what we're doing is we're celebrating, like, the establishment of this country. We're establishing the rights and the freedoms that were afforded in that, and that's all well and good. Um, but we submit all of those things to our kingdom citizenship. And I think one of the most powerful things to recognize as a Christian first, and I've said, you know, I've used this quote many times before, uh, Uncle Stanley Hauerwas, he says, most American Christians don't know how to read the Bible because they're Americans before they're Christians. And the deeper implication there um, is that we take everything that we are as Americans, but we submit that to the kingdom. So all of these uh, individual rights that we celebrate, the freedoms that we have, we lay all of that down at the feet of King Jesus because he is our ultimate allegiance. And it begins to re-examine the way in which we hold Americanness itself. It re-examines the way that we approach a pol a politics and uh, civil discourse, and, and uh, it shapes how we uh, engage with other people. And we see all of this kind of through this passage in First Peter, speaking of us as resident aliens, talking about um, our interaction with pagans, talking about the way that we interact with the government. So um, this is my phone number. Um, what we're going to do is you can send me some questions. Um, if you know me and you have my phone number, uh, trust that I'll keep it anonymous. I told Becky Tompton, who's up with the kids, that I'm going to blame every question on her. I'd be like, Becky Tompton, ask another one. Um, so you can just go up to her and be like, Becky, what, what was, that was inappropriate. And she'll know what you're talking about. Um, so if you already have my number, I promise to keep your name anonymous. If you don't have my number, I won't know that it's you. So there you go. Um, so a couple things. Here's what I won't address directly at the least. Uh, we're not going to talk about policy, okay? So I don't want you to ask me, like, what is my opinion on, uh, you know, the removal of uh, Roe versus Wade? Like, I can answer that as a guy and a guy who reads a lot, but that's not what we're here to do. You know what I mean? Like, we can have that conversation elsewhere, and I obviously have a lot of opinions, but I don't want to get into that kind of thing. I don't think that serves this time well. Um, we're not going to address directly, like, government structure. Like, do you believe that the Supreme Court should be expanded? Like, I have thoughts. But in that realm, I'm just an idiot who reads NBC News every night. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the guy. Stefan's the guy. Go, talk, go ask Stefan about that one, because that's actually his realm. Um, he clerks for a, uh, uh, one of the judges downtown, which is very cool. Those are my areas of expertise. Um, I am a theologian, and I'm a pastor, so I want theological and pastoral questions. So some of the things I do want to talk about, um, the theology of political engagement. What does it look like for us to be Christians first and Americans second? Um, I, I would love for us to have a conversation around identity politics and how we got to where we are today. Um, talking about 
uh, civil discourse. What does it mean to be a Christian in a democratic republic? Um, and then uh, what especially interests me, I think because of my personality, is kind of a unity in the church. Um, one of the things, um, if you're on Slack, you maybe noticed a couple weeks ago, um, when Ro Roe v. Wade was overturned is that I posted something on kind of our main channel in Slack and talked about this, that I'm very proud that our community um, has a, a rather rich diversity of political thought in it. That here we have conservatives and moderates and independents and liberals and anarchists and communists and, <laughs> you know, um, all of these people are here. And I think that's good. I think that's a vision of the kingdom. Um, if you think that like people who vote a certain way don't belong in the kingdom, you're making yourself a gatekeeper of heaven. And who really wants that job? And I think most of you are here because you, on some level, at least theoretically, believe, yes, that's the right way forward for the kingdom. But in practicality, what often happens is that we feel threatened by people who have different opinions than us on political motive, you know, things or social justice issues or whatever it might be. And our temptation, because of the prevailing uh, spirit of the age, is say, I'm going to go somewhere where everybody already agrees with me. And that's why we have conservative churches and we have liberal churches, which I think is a tragedy. Um, because the primary way that you experience what we call sanctification, which is being to be made holy or to be made more like Jesus, is through suffering. And suffering comes by sitting next to people that you don't like. Okay? That the pr one of the primary ways that God sanctifies you is that he places you within a people that you did not choose but were chosen for you. And you have to learn how to live with those people. And as we'll see later, when we come to the Lord's table, we look across the table and we go, Darren gets to be here? Uh, you know? And the spirit of Jesus goes, yeah, he does. He's my son in whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And it begins to refine us and shed us of some of these prejudices and biases that we have. It is very hard to do that in practice. It's very hard to maintain unity in the church. It is easier to go and to choose a conservative church or a liberal church um, or, or an affirming church or a non-affirming church or whatever this language is. But when we do so, we actually inhibit the witness that the church um, is to give to the world of what happens when human beings are gathered up under the kingship of Jesus. So, <clears throat> this could go horribly wrong. Wow, look at all these messages. Um, Marshall asked, are you single? <laughs> Marshall, I told you, you cannot text me. My mom texted me. She's not even here. That's some, for something else. <clears throat> all right. What does it look like to engage in political conversation with those who idolize politics on both sides? Who idolize politics? Okay, this is a really great question. I think it's a good one uh, to start with. Um, let's talk about identity politics uh, first, okay? So um, you can go online and you can look at um, the result of having a two-party system in our country. Binary thinking is very natural and normative for human beings because literally, look down, you've got a left hand and a right hand. You've got two eyes, you've got two legs, and so on. So we think dualistically, we think binary. We think uh, black, white, good, bad, right, wrong, and so on. It's a very normal way for us 
to grow up in the world. And so uh, in the kind of American experiment we saw, you know, before long, like just over 100 years ago, we kind of settled into a two-party system, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And you can go online and you can see how people voted from election to election, and it, and it, and it shifts through time. And it's really quite fascinating because the country used to be very purple. It was kind of, everybody was everywhere. And then it all kind of starts to shift and starts to move. Um, and at one point, uh, I don't know if anybody in here is old enough to remember this, but the South was like where the Democrats lived and the Northeast was where the Republicans lived, okay? And then it kind of flips um, in the 50s and 60s. And over time, you start to see these two colors, red and blue, pulling apart in that time. Um, and this is kind of the, uh, the, the centrifuge effect. You know, like in, in science, when you have your little test tubes and you have a centrifuge, and it spins, and what happens is it pulls everything out to the extremes. So when you only have two options in your culture, that's what happens. The extremes get pulled out. So in my own country, Catholics and Protestants. In this country, Democrats and Republicans. Um, and before long, um, the extremes start to demand a certain kind of allegiance and groupthink in order for you to belong and to feel safe. Uh, now, this is the phen phenomenon that I see typically happens, is specifically in the relationship between government, politics, and Christianity. Generally speaking, um, conservatives conflate religion and politics, whereas liberals remove religion and elevate politics to become a new religion. So what does religion do? Religion gives us symbols, words, and actions that inform us of who we are, and it gives us a sense of meaning to our life. And so when politics is elevated into the place of religion, that's what we seem to see happen. Just generally speaking, conservatives make politics and religion the same thing. Um, Jesus votes Republican, obviously, so you should, and you can't question that. But on the left, what we tend to see is religion is, is bad, is antiquated, and so on. We're just going to be rational, but... It, before long, the political uh, structure becomes the new religion. It gives me symbols, it gives me a sense of identity, um, and it tells me like what the meaning of my life is. And whenever you belong to a tribe, you need, you need them over there in order to inform you of who you are. So we don't really exist super well unless we have an opponent. And so that's what you see in these ident identity politics. So. Back to this question about engaging in political conversation with those who idolize politics. Um, it's to recognize that every, uh, everything that everyone believes right now is tied in with who they think they are. So to question someone's opinion on Roe versus Wade is to question who they are as a person and is to question their value. And one of the things that I've learned as a pastor over what, 11, 12 years now is the question I'm being asked is rarely ever the question I'm actually being asked. People are usually asking, am I okay? Do I belong? Do I matter? And politics is one of the arenas that I think very insufficiently, but is answering that question for people now because religion hasn't done it. Or because it's so conflated to say, yes, you matter, and therefore you have to vote this certain way. So I think you should be really sensitive to that. Number two, I think you need to find common ground, okay? Um, one of the scariest things that I'm recognizing is that we no longer have an underlying uh, cultural narrative that informs us of what it even means to be American anymore. Um, and that's a relatively new phenomenon. We're in uncharted territory. There are more stories 
to separate us, where it feels like we're living in two different countries simultaneously, then there is that common story of like, this is what America is, and this is where America is headed. Um, and that's, a, again, a result of identity politics. So being able to find any semblance of common ground, I think, is absolutely imperative. So uh, uh, you know, abortion conversations recently have been a really good example. Um, it really grinds my gears when I see uh, the dehumanization and uh, uh, the parody of, quote-unquote, the other side. Um, when it's saying conservatives just want to control women's bodies at the end of the day, or when it's liberals just want to be able to kill babies at the end of the day. I think that's uh, infantile. I do not think that kind of language helps anyone, and it shuts us down from being able to listen to people and seeing why do you believe what you believe. The sexiest thing to me in the world is curiosity. Anybody else? And really nice eyebrows. <laughs> Those two things, curiosity and really nice eyebrows, really sexy. And I think to be able to be curious about, and as non-judgmental as possible, to listen to the reasons behind why people believe things uh, is absolutely imperative. All right, Becky Tompton asks this question. Uh, I'm more relationally driven than politically driven, but sometimes it feels I have to be political to be relational. Does someone like me have a place at a table of political conversations? Great question. Um, politics is not a dirty word. Politics just means this is how we've chosen to organize ourselves um, as a, a culture or a society. That's all politics really means. People are usually afraid of partisanship, which is something very different. So politics is inherently re relational. Um, but here's a really freeing thing. Uh, it's three words. And it goes like this, I don't know. Isn't that nice? Because I think a lot of times in when, again, when we're trapped and ensnared in identity politics, especially with the news cycle that we have and how social media has exasperated the problem, because again, they profit off of keeping you in your political identity and feeding you rage porn so that you're just constantly angry at the supposed other side. Um, and I've said before, the way that the cycle works is you need to have a fully formed opinion on every single political issue that comes across your social media feed within 24 hours or you are on the wrong side of history. And so all of a sudden, everybody has to be an expert. And this is when we begin to say very stupid things uh, and where we tend to hurt people and we become very ill-informed. Because guess what? Everything in the world is complicated. Did you know that? Like, it's all complicated. Nothing is simple. And I actually, uh, I'm very wary when someone tells me that anything is, like, at the end of the day, it's just about this. No, it's not. It's never been just about that because the world is complex and it's beautiful. And so I think to be able to have a place at the table, um, first of all, means that you don't have to have fully formed opinions on everything that's kind of passing through your feed, and you don't have to get enraged, but I do think being curious and being open and listening and really trying to figure out what happens, because I'm also not an advocate of um, just shutting it all down, you know, going, well, it's all, it, it's all bunk and it's all poisonous, so I'm just going to not pay attention. I do not think that's where we're called to be as Christians. I think we should be uh, diligent, and we should be really paying attention, and it requires a lot of emotional and mental work. But we need to build the kind of resiliency where we can enter into these conversations as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, 
be curious and listen and then kind of inquire of the Lord. Come back to God to, to seek. What, is, what, are, what do I believe about this? Because if you're a Christian, everything is theology. Every opinion that you have is a reflection on what you believe about God. Now, you've probably never been told that. Um, so God is interested in like things like your heart, whatever that is. And he's interested in where you go when you die, right? That kind of thing. God doesn't have an opinion on a lot of other things on this planet. That's how we're usually, it's set up. And so I can have opinions over here that have nothing to do with God. But everything you believe as a Christian, if God is the ground of all being, is a result of that. And I think that that begins to shape how we understand our political engagement, that we're doing it first and foremost as Christians because our posture says something about what we believe about God. Um, and the most, and I think in that, even practically speaking, is it very much matters what our opinions are and it very much matters how we engage with other people. So when we dehumanize other people, um, when we try to score political points, quote unquote, against the other side, uh, we are no longer speaking the truth in love. And that's what we see Paul saying in, in Ephesians, like speak the truth in love. And if you do not speak the truth in love, it's no longer truth. Maybe it's factual accuracy, but it's probably just propaganda. And so we have to be reflective as much of how we engage with people across the aisle or at the table than what we are actually saying. Oh my goodness, so many questions. You guys are great. Um, does Satan have power over the halls of... Does Satan have power over the halls of political power? Yes, absolutely he does. Um, he is the king of the air. Um, Satan is a very interesting uh, kind of non-person. Satan is like a parasite. And parasites need hosts in order to survive. If a parasite does not have a host, a parasite ceases to exist. So Satan is the, the accuser. That's kind of one of the ways we think about him, or the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, and so Satan, as this parasitic force of accusation, is very much alive and well in the halls of political power today. Um, one of the most interesting things, ah, yeah, you even put it here, when he tempts Jesus with power over all the kings of the world. I love when people ask me, um, what would a Christian nation look like if Jesus was president? I think it's hilarious. Or there's other subcategories. People are like, well, which party is more Christian? <laughs> which is so great. It's so funny to me. Um, Jesus actually was offered political power at one point. Does anybody know when? Temptation in the wilderness, right. So Satan says to me, I'll tell you what, you just bow down to me. I will make, give you all the kingdoms of the world because they all belong to me. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way that it's meant to be. I wish a lot of people, especially in the evangelical church over the past 70 years, heard that story well, to be offered political power um, that Jesus rejects. And a lot of times, and especially in the evangelical world, we have taken that power and said, yeah, absolutely, because we believe that's how we're going to fix the world, um, is that we have political power. Um, it's a result of uh, Constantinianism. So in the kind of 300s, the emperor Constantine converts to Christianity. Christianity becomes a state religion by the end of the decade. And then Christianity and the state are exactly the same thing. If you are Roman, you are now officially Christian, has get nothing to do with what you believe. And that's been very prevalent for 1,700 years. Um, more recently, uh, 
the, the theology is called dominionism. And dominionism means if we can get Christians into places of power in kind of the, kind of like the seven mountains theory of, of culture, um, then we've established a Christian nation. So if we can get pre- Christians into the White House, if we can get cr- uh, Christians in the head of organizations for arts and government and um, education, and we do it that way, we can do this top-down, like trickle-down Christianity where we can impose a Christian worldview on other people. And um, there has never, ever been an example where there's been a Christian in political power uh, that's ever done a good job. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. Because we succumb to the spirit of Satan and we begin to believe we get a little bit more power and influence and a little bit more and a little bit more and before long we recognize we're not actually serving the kingdom of heaven um, but that we're, we're in it for our own power. Um, so I think yeah, how does this impact the way we approach political discourse in the local church? Um, listen for the spirit of accusation, because where the spirit of accusation is, the spirit of Satan is alive and well. Um, I'll touch on this one very briefly, because it's not specific to what we're talking about here, but I think it's really good. The joy I have in God's love is very real. However, the guilt I have for my friends who have been so hurt by the church is also real. How do we reconcile those two emotions to show others the love of God? Um, I think the, the most valid critique of America is from inside America. Okay? Um, someone had asked at one point about patriotism. And they said, can you be patriotic? I said, absolutely, you can be patriotic. Like, I think it's great to love your country. It's just, what do you mean by America? What, which, which America do you love? And as I said before, if you love something enough, you recognize the blind spots, you, re- you recognize um, you know, evil in the past or in the present, and when you love something, you're able to honestly hold it. Nationalism is what happens when we refuse to see the blind spots of our country, or our political party, right? That you can still have, I think nationalism, again, is more common on the conservative part of the spectrum, but there, there's a very perverse version of nationalism on the liberal side where it's like that, this unquestioned allegiance to the party and to its ideals. Similarly, I think the most profound critiques of the church um, come from people who are very, very devoted to the church. Um, Jesus loves the church. Jesus is very fond of the church. And this does not mean that Jesus abdicates the church of the places where the church has hurt people. And um, I don't, I'm not interested in critiques from the church when I, um, when I remove myself from the church and I go, look at the church over there and how they've hurt people. And I'm this Christian and I'm not going to associate with them. Uh, that's self-righteousness. It's really self-righteous when I say, oh, I don't like the way the church is, so I'm going to remove myself from being part of the church and be on my little purity bubble. Same thing to go, oh, look at America and look how terrible America is, and I'm going to remove myself uh, from America. That's self-righteousness. We're called to a sense of humility, um, and humility was this kind of radical new notion that came out of the Christian movement in the first century. It was not a virtue in the, the Roman or the Greek world. And there's a deep sense of ownership of mistakes that are made in the body politic, whether it's your, your nation or uh, the church. And I think as the church, we need to continually, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we need to lament and we need to repent of the way in which we have and continue to hurt people. 
but um, we also resolve to do better. And that's the other part of it, is I think if you have critiques of the church, well then do better, be a better church. And if you have critiques of America, well do better, be a better kind of American. Um, and so I think there's a deep sensitivity to others, but it's also through demonstration of what is a better way. Um, someone sent me a meme of Sam the Eagle, who's top three Muppets for sure. Oh boy, sorry for the length. <clears throat> You're absolved. <clears throat> I recently went to a very charismatic French four-hour-long church service that believed that their way of loving people was to sometimes forcefully put the word on non-believers, trying to save people and not accept their sins or differences, i.e. gender identity, sexual orientation. The pastor was so proud of and encouraged the congregation to stop any secular music at wedding receptions because it would set up the marriage to, to sin. He then proceeded to condemn the entire Disney organization and their secret agendas, which they thought was to force gay culture on others rather than encourage love and acceptance of others' differences. How can, we how can one justify this behavior as love? <clears throat> you can't. That one was easy. <laughs> In summary, how can Christians claim to love others by condemning them into believing rather than accepting them as they are and supporting them as human beings? Okay, so um, theologically, there's a lot of questions within that last one. Um, what does it mean to accept someone as they are? Um, which comes to what does it mean for someone to be something? Uh, and that's a question that you have to ask yourself before that, because I think that's a lot of the times where the assumptions break down. Um, we, this is not a counter-argument to the question, but um, another spirit of the age is to love someone means that I have to agree with everything they say. And I think that's really poisonous. Um, which, again, is why when you're a conservative in a liberal space, a liberal in a conservative space, or whatever, if, if family, church. Church you can choose out of, family you can't choose out of. Um, that's why I go, oh, I don't feel safe, or I don't feel welcome because I have different ideas, and my ideas are my identity. It's who I am. So I'm going to remove myself from this place and go find a place where people do agree with me. Um, so affirmation does not equal love, uh, but condemnation does not equal love either. Um, so I, I remember, uh, some of you remember this, after everything happened with Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, and all of that scandal in the 90s, um, Billy Graham went to visit the Clintons in the White House. And when he came out, a lot of the press, including a lot of Christian press, came at him and they said, how can you, how can you go and like, sit with this sinner and blah, 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 like he deceived the nation and all these things. And he said, um, it's God's job to judge, it's the Holy Spirit's job uh, to convict, and it's my job to love. Um, and I think that's a really good and profound theological differentiation of what our role is. Our role is not to condemn other people. And I think that that's even what Peter's saying here and what we see kind of throughout the New Testament is like our role is not to try to convict people because when we try to convict people, we usually just condemn them. Um, so it, there's, it's more complex than that. Um, but, it, you know, again, I, I, don't, I don't know that this uh, technique was the best one. Um, is it possible that many of our current social and racial issues have arisen as the result of the church abdicating too many responsibilities to the government? Freaking yes. Like we basically said, here's my money in the form of taxes. Go do my job for me. If so, how do we begin to unwind that? If not, 
how do we do our job well, caring for the least of these within a society that's looking to the government, not the government, to, uh, not the church, to be the agents of change? So glad you asked this question. Yes, 100%, the church abdicates the responsibility of being the church to the government. We outsource the work. And again, it's not a left-right divide. Um, we have our agendas, and so conservative church tends to want the government to impose uh, personal Christian morality on the nation, whereas the liberal church wants the government to impose social Christian morality on the rest of the nation. So over here, it's like abortion and sodomy laws and uh, gay marriage and whatnot. And over here, it's like immigrants and uh, social welfare and those sorts of things. That's usually how it works. Um, so again, if we have a degree of humility, we recognize like, wow, we just want the government to be the kinds of Christians that we don't have the time or capacity or energy to be. Um, and I think that this is the reorientation that we've been attempting in this series to say the first role of the church is to be the church. And the second role of the church is to show the world that it's the world. And it feels very dissatisfying to people to say our first political position is to be the church, the shining city on the hill to show this is what it looks like when God is king and how we gather, uh, to, like how we gather together, how we treat one another bears witness to the rest of the world of a radical alternative society and a, certainly a, a political society. Um, and so I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Our first role um, as the church is to, to do the work of being the church in the way that we treat one another and then our attitude toward the world. Um, I think Christians should be the most generous people in our culture. Um, I think that people should be very confused by how we sacrificially love one another and then how we love um, other people, especially the people that God has a special proclivity towards. Um, but we don't want to do that. Um, and again, I could pick out like both sides where we, we just put it out onto the government. And again, what belies that is we think that this is a Christian nation. So whatever the government does is what Christ wants to do. And again, that's not a left-right divide. That's like we're all kind of stuck in that. So I think we really have to take a deeper look um, and recognize the extent of my political attitude is not how I pay taxes and how I vote every four years. Um, but my, the most political thing I can do is to be part of the church and is to create this alternative society. Now, it takes a lot of work. Uh, Jesus more or less says we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's in a world where we don't live under a totalitarian empire, but in a democratic republic. What civil obligations do we owe to our Caesar beyond paying taxes, if any? In other words, how do we translate Jesus's admiration to our current context? Great question. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's is about um, specifically paying taxes and money. I don't like how my taxes get spent. Any of you a big fan of how you're... Anybody look at the, the, the U.S. budget and you're like, nailed it. That's so good. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, so giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, one of the originalist or textualist ways of understanding this would be that it's very specifically about paying taxes. Is there a deeper theological concept there um, about our attitude towards the government? Yes, possibly. Um, one of the most important things to recognize about the Bible is there is no, there's zero precedent for living in a democratic republic in the Bible, okay? 
every word in the Bible was written in the shadow of empire, okay? So especially uh, in the time of Jesus, Paul, Peter, um, you don't get to vote on who the emperor is. And that shaped their understanding. So when Paul writes Romans 13, he's talking about submitting the government. He's writing like 150 people that live in the city of Rome who quite literally are in the shadow of the empire. Like there's the, you know, Caesar, he's up there and Caesar is God and he's the prince of peace and all these things. Um, they don't get to, Christians don't get to have a say. We do. And I, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it wasn't such a good idea for us to have opinions and to have a say because either it goes very wrong for the government in the sense that we are so adamant about like being a shining light that um, that can be very difficult or um, we abdicate our citizenship to the kingdom of heaven in order to take political power because we get to have a say. So those are the two ways of looking at it. Um, so we do not have any obligation. Um, what's happening in 1 Peter 2 and in Romans 13 is that um, God, the word is establish, which in Greek is trasso, which means like um, to order or allow. And so God allows the establishment of uh, earthly governments, um, not because he approves of them, necessarily, but God is a God who turns curses into blessings. So God is a God who can use evil to hold off evil. And you see this um, throughout the scriptures. You see in like the book of Judges where God would send in like the Amalekites and the Stalactites and the Samsonites to like <laughs> bring Israel to repentance. They turn back to him. It doesn't mean he approves of them. He doesn't think that they're great, but God is capable of using chaos and evil of humanity to even there uh, work things out for his good. So um, we recognize that with uh, the U.S. government, that it's not that God gives it a stamp of approval, but he's able to use that. And essentially what, especially in Romans 13, he's talking about is being able to have a sense of order. And uh, that means just kind of keeping people safe. Now, the government can very easily overstep those bounds and actually be oppressive. Um, and there's a lot of critique in scripture for when governments do that. We see that time and again through the life of Jesus. Um, and so one of the roles of Christians when government um, oversteps the boundaries of keeping people safe, keeping some semblance of order, is to speak truth to power. This is what we see uh, when Jesus is confronting Pontius Pilate before his crucifixion. Um, we don't speak truth at power. Um, and we don't speak truth for power, we speak truth to power. And again, in like uh, Matthew 10, Jesus says, you're going to be brought before uh, government establishments, and you're going to know, not know what to say. Don't worry, because I'll tell you what to say. Like he's speaking to his apostles, like you're going to find yourself in these positions, like in the halls of power. So as Christians, do we um, seek to speak truth to power? Uh, and that's very uh, tricky and hard to do, um, but there's just some wonderful resources out there. Um, so what else do we owe government? Um, developing your own theology of voting and what that actually means and what that actually looks like. Should you vote? Should you not vote? There are good theological arguments on both sides. Who should you vote for? There's great theological arguments on both sides, but um, there's a lot there. Oh, it's 1120. Okay, we'll try to get through the last ones really quick. Do you think that the Lord leads people into different political views? If yes, how can we do that a healthy way? Um, I.e., is it okay that two followers could have two different views? Um, no, God has one opinion on everything, and your job is just to figure out what's the right answer. I'm joking. Um, 
I see these questions differently. Does the Lord lead people into different political views? Um, I think there's a difference between asking if the Lord leads people to views and if it's okay for followers to have different views. The latter I'd feel more comfortable in answering. Yes, uh, it is okay that two followers could have different views. A lot of times we tend to think of belief as uh, static um, and immobile, like we take on upon ourselves a status, like here's my opinion, here's my thought, here's my theological boundaries, or here's my political boundaries, I've got everything set in place, now I don't have to question it anymore. When in reality, um, it is dynamic and it's constantly growing. The fastest way to, uh, to kill your faith is to treat it as something that is static and you just kind of get all the tchotchkes on the shelf. Um, still more so, I think, uh, or at least as much when it comes to your particular view on any issue, especially politics, is if it's just like, it's on the shelf, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, this is how I vote, whatever, like I don't have to examine it anymore. Uh, that's a fast track to idolatry for sure. Um, so I think God puts different things on different people's hearts. Um, I think God leaves a lot of, like it is the grace of God to not tell us everything, that we have to work it out. Um, and I've said this a lot, I think even with like when the scripture says like, do not lust. We say, okay, well, what is lust? And Jesus says, go and figure out what this means. It's kind of like, you've got to start engaging and you're learning how to listen to the Holy Spirit and you're kind of working these things out. And there's, um, I think it's actually the strength of the church that we have a wonderful diversity of views. If those views were continually reflecting on what am I saying about God when I have this particular belief? Um, how do you approach your own passions or convictions with humility and without moving into judgment or being confrontational? Uh, poorly. <laughs> um, I have to, I have to check myself a lot of times and, it, and it's learning how to see the little triggers that I have for like when I'm giving myself over to, like I, I'm old enough to recognize now that rage is not the same thing as righteous indignation. Um, and just getting angry at whatever this side is doing or that side. Is, and learning what's the thing beneath the thing and how can I maintain a, a, a humble presence of, again, curiosity, willingness uh, to learn, but actually being all the more convinced, like uh, confident of my allegiance to Jesus. Um, and the more that I find myself laying claim to my uh, citizenship in heaven, the more suspicious I am of conventional wisdom in the world um, and, in, and in politics. And um, I think Christians should probably be very slippery on how you would define them in a particular political party. Because in reality, there are, there are things in both quote-unquote sides <clears throat> that would appear apparently Christian. It's just a question of how important do we make those things or what's our attitude to how we're supposed to live as opposed to how we want the U.S. government to operate or whatever it might be. And so... Um, <clears throat> Uh, one of the biggest things for me has been maintaining friendships with people who, with whom I vehemently disagree on political issues and talking about it and engaging with it and not being afraid to go, I, I need to come out of this place where my identity is in my beliefs and you do too. So if we engage in that project together, we can actually have intelligent, riveting conversation, but we do it hand in hand. Uh, and I think that skill set is not an option for the future. Uh, for this country, but certainly not for the church. 
Uh, how should Christians even vote? Choosing a lesser evil doesn't feel right. You uh, can be under the conviction to not vote at all, but you have to accept the consequences of what that means. And I think that that's part of what voting is, is like, do I accept the consequence of what like, me voting in this particular way does? Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to um, invite uh, the band to come up. Was Jesus political? How so? Yes, Jesus was political. Again, if politics is about how we organize ourselves, and there is the, the, the politics of the kingdom, which is how we interact and how we conduct ourselves in common life. Um, and um, Jesus was very political in a very particular sense. There's a book called The Politics of Jesus by William Howard Yoder that I would highly recommend to people. <clears throat> Another book, the Myth, Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd is an excellent one. And if religion... And society tends to see things in black and white. Is there any gray in the Bible? Um, I think, I don't know if I'd say gray. I'd say like uh, a rainbow of colors in the Bible. Um, The Bible is not the handbook for life. It's not there to tell us like, here's the problem. Like, what do we do about nuclear disarmament? Well, great. Turn to page 283 in the Bible. And here is exactly, the Bible is there to teach you how to think like a Christian. That's what it's for is it leads us to Jesus through the transforming of the renewal of our mind by the spirit of Jesus, we begin to think, act, and feel more like Jesus. And so our posture towards these questions in the world, it's this kind of like um, this cognitive restructuring where we say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about nuclear disarmament. And the Bible doesn't say, actually, honestly, doesn't have much to say about abortion. Um, It doesn't have much, it doesn't have anything to say about gay marriage. Like there's all of these modern issues that the Bible has no direct um, corollary to us. The Bible does not tell us how to vote or to be in a democracy. We have to learn how to think. And that only comes um, from spending time with King Jesus and allowing his spirit to wash over us and to transform the way that we think, feel, and act. So I want to invite you to stand with me. There's There's a lot more we could do. Maybe I'll, there's still 17 more questions. Maybe I'll, um, I'll, I'll write a blog and we can kind of get into more of this. But I hope this kind of thing's helpful. I've been thinking about if we start to do this sort of thing more in the future because um, I, think you're, I think you're smart and I think that you are compassionate um, and I think that you are all thinking, learning how to think well. And I think... I hope that we're mature enough to continue having these sorts of conversations. And so this is a, um, this is a quote from Miroslav Wolf, who is a Croatian uh, theologian. I'm reading his book, Exclusion and Embrace, right now. And it's absolutely fantastic. It's talking about the problem of these divisions that we make, where we're continually reestablishing these dividing walls of hostility um, that Jesus has torn down. And um, I think it's an absolute tragedy when we have been claimed into the body of Christ, and then as Paul tells us, we turn to a part of the body and go, oh, I don't need you, or oh, you're not welcome here, because at the end of the day, my political allegiance, or my opinion on Roe versus Wade, or my opinion on gay marriage, or you know, whatever it might be, is actually more important to me than being uh, found in King Jesus and being part of his family. And I think we all probably need to re- like repent of that attitude where we've, we've chosen lines in the sand that we place ahead 
of our actual allegiance to Christ. And so Vol says this, at the heart of the cross is Christ's stance of not letting the other remain an enemy and of creating space in himself for the offender to come in. One of my favorite things about the kingdom these days is that Jesus has a heart for the oppressed and the oppressor because he wants to see them all redeemed and brought into the kingdom. And so he creates space in himself for the offender to come in. Red is the culmination of the larger narrative of God's dealing with humanity. The cross says that despite its manifest enmity towards God, humanity belongs to God. God will not be God without humanity. How does that hit you? God will not be God without humanity. Inscribed on the very heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What happens to us must be done by us. Having been embraced by God, we must make space for ourselves, for others in ourselves, and invite them in, even our enemies, even Democrats, even Republicans, even gay people. You know, like, whatever that line is, like, to come to the table is that we create space for other people in ourselves and we invite them in. This is what we enact as we celebrate the Eucharist. In receiving Christ's broken body and spilled blood, we, in a sense, receive all those whom Christ received by suffering. So we're going to enter into some prayer, call and response, um, and then I'm going to invite you to the table. And I really want you to consider that. Like, this is the symbolic act of you pledging allegiance to King Jesus. That you, your first citizenship is in, his is, is in heaven. That you are a resident alien. That you are a foreigner. You're an exile. You are here, but you are not of here. And this is a political act because we're declaring, we are pledging our allegiance to Jesus as the one true king. And we believe that as we take the body and blood of Christ into us, it continues that transformation. That day by day we are learning the language of the kingdom of heaven. That we're learning its customs. We're learning how to be more and more faithful. And in doing so, we begin to shed some of our political ideologies. We begin to see um, the lies that are being sown by the Satan to keep us divided. And we actually look across the table at the other, and we welcome the other in because they are now part of us. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. So let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, for all your goodness and your love. When we turned away, you did not reject us. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. On the night before he died, he came to table with his friends and taking bread, he gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us now. May this bread and this wine be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you the sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the song of heaven, forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace. Give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to come forward. We'll start in the front rows and work our way back to take a piece of the bread, uh, to dip it in the juice. Um, the crackers in the middle are gluten-free, uh, but come one, come all, and let us feast at the table of the Lord. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.